so one of the papers I gave at this past year's SBL, uh, SBL is the Society of Biblical Literature. So this is sort of the, the highest sort of guild for biblical scholarship. Um, it's not a confessional society, it's an academic. Um, I presented a paper in the Pseudepigrapha section. Um, so Pseudepigrapha, if your listeners are unaware, is just a fancy term that means writings that are attributed to writers that didn't write them. So uh, this is a common phenomena in early Judaism and early Christianity. So we have this, we have lots of pseudepigrapha. So in other words, the book of one Enoch, you know, it's a long book, basically a compilation of like five different pieces. And, and it's attributed to Enoch, even though it was written in probably second, third century BCE. So Enoch most certainly didn't write it, but it's attributed to him. So, so this is what we mean by pseudepigrapha. So there's lots of literature that didn't make it in the Bible. And lots of literature in the Bible that's super, but um, but uh, yeah, there's lots of literature, in the, and one of one of these uh, texts, one of these superficial texts, is not really a text; it's a play, um, and this is the first example of a Jewish play that we ever have in history. Actually, um, it's from probably about the second century BCE. So probably around 200 years before the time of Christ. Okay. Um, most scholars uh, would say this comes from Alexandria. The play is called, well, scholars call it Ezekiel the Tragedian. Um, uh, and the, the play itself, the name of the play is just exagoge or exagogue, some people say. It's just, which just means exodus. Um, so what the play is, is a retelling of the story of the Exodus, you know, um, and it's written in Greek. It's written in um, iambic trimeter, which is a very common way of writing Greek tragedies in the period. So Aeschylus and Euripides and all these famous Greek uh, tragedians, it's written in that style. Okay. So this is a Jewish writer trying his hand at Greek tragedy, you know, putting on, what would have likely been a play in Alexandria. And what makes this text so fascinating is we only have like 269 lines of it. We don't have the whole thing. I mean, that's a lot of lines. We have a lot, but um, it's only preserved in people like Clement of Alexandria and Eusebius, like church fathers. They'll preserve like portions of it and just like quote big portions of it. And so that's where we get sort of our, where we even know about this play. So it survived into early Christianity in Alexandria, especially. Um, so this is why we think, okay, well, this is, this is an Alexandrian play, um, which is a huge Jewish population, Alexandria before and after Christ, you know, Alexandria becomes a hub of early Christianity because of that, the whole Alexandrian interpretive tradition coming from Philo and Jews long before Christ, you know, or around the time of Christ, you know, Alexandria is a hub for this. So this, the reason why I wrote a paper on this text um, is I, I call it, then at my feet, a multitude of stars fell down, which is a quote from the play, um, the divine plenipotentiary function of Abrahamic tradition in the Exegoge, 68 through 89. And what, I, what this just scholar talked for saying, um, the play that retells the Exodus Moses gets this divine vision 
of his ascent of the cosmic mountain. And in his vision, when he ascends the mountain, there's the throne of God at the top of the mountain. And God gets up off the throne and bids Moses to sit down on the throne of God. This is 200 years before Jesus, by the way. <laughs> um, he's, he's crowned with the diadem. The, 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 the God figure takes the diadem off, puts it on Moses' head, and gives Moses the scepter. So he's bearing the actual scepter on the throne. And it says, then a multitude of stars fell down at his feet, and he numbered them all. Okay. So there's the there's the Abrahamic story, like yeah. number the seed. Can you num- number the stars? Can you number them? You know, and so it says all the stars they fell down before him. He numbered them all. They appeared to him as mortals. You know, these are immortal beings. But to Moses, who's like basically deified in the vision, <laughs> um, they appear as mortals to him. And so it's like, whoa, what? You know what? Why haven't I heard of this? You know, the deification of Moses. Well, I mean, this is just an interpretation of Exodus. Okay. I mean, Exodus literally says, Exodus 4, you know, Yahweh tells Moses, I will make you Elohim to Pharaoh. I will make you God to Pharaoh. And he says, and Aaron will not be my prophet, Yahweh says. Yahweh says, and Aaron will be your prophet. (laughs) So like, He's a deity with a prophet. <laughs> so, like, this is in the book of Exodus. This isn't in some wild Second Temple interpretation. So, right. and then what happens to Moses? He is face to face with Yahweh as to a friend, and his face shines with the with the kavod, with the the weight, the glory of God, to where they have to literally uh, tabernacle him because he bears the shekinah, the 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 glory of God. So they have to literally tap the term is tabernacle, the okay. veil for his face. They tabernacle his face because they, 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 the people can't see the glory of Yahweh, which is on his face. Um, so this is the background to what you see in the new Testament transfiguration scenes, you know, and, and the passages in Paul where um, we see with unveiled face in two Corinthians three, where the current people read Torah, they read it with a veiled face. They can't see the glory, but we've seen it. And he says, we've been, we have been glorified and we are being glorified, you know, transferred from one glory to another glory, you know? So Paul thinks this is already, man, just like Jesus was glorified and Moses was glorified like God, we will, we're already been glorified in the Numa too. So this, this tradition gets big. So the play actually has this deification of Moses scene. And I go and say, well, how, why, why reference this numbering of the stars? That's from Abraham. Yeah. You know, what does that have to be do with being divine? Well, the, if the play is using that Abrahamic tradition from Genesis after Moses is already deified, then it shows that the author of that play reads Genesis 15, that numbering of the stars, Abraham, if you can number them, as a divine act. Why does he, why do they read it that way? Because there's only two other times in the Hebrew Bible where there's a numbering of the stars. It's only two other times. You have it in Genesis 15, but you have it in Psalm 147, and you have it in Psalm or Isaiah 40. Okay. But both of those texts, 
Psalm 147.4 says he, Yahweh, determines or counts, the same number, um, the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Okay. So Yahweh is the one who is the marshal of the heavenly armies. He's the one that names them all. He's the one that rules over them all. So if you think of this in terms of an ancient Near Eastern king doing a census of his armies, he numbers them all. So this is a God thing. He numbers the heavenly hosts. They're his armies. He's the heavenly marshal. Again, Isaiah 40, 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, those in the heavens, right? He who brings out their host, their tavaot, the armies, and numbers them, mm. calling them all by name. See, just like in the psalm, he names them. Calling them all by name because he is great in strength, mighty in power. Not one is missing. Nice. See, so this is the heavenly marshal, you know, marshalling <laughs> all the forces before him. So if you know these texts, that gives you a whole nother spin on Genesis 15. Oh, yeah. That's like, it's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Is So is Abraham basically being asked if he could be God, kind of? <laughs> and, and the answer is to some early Jews, yes. Okay. And what you have in this play from before Jesus, you have a deification of Moses and how his, de- his sort of seated on a throne in this vision as God is manifest, what happens? He numbers all the heavenly hosts. Mm. So, so obviously, early Jews, long before Christ, interpret that promise to Abraham as a promise of deification. Yeah. David, would, that, would that play any into when David does his census and the whole Satan language yes. there, and he's not supposed to do that, but he does, and then yeah, Christ I have comes... A, yeah, I have and an article. Christ comes and Christ, you know, he can call legions of angels. So Christ comes and does it right. So the back to your argument with Luke, and they yeah. took up the sword, and David takes up the senses when he's not supposed to, and Christ chooses otherwise. So that all ties into what you're saying, you know. It really and does. Even even Paul in 2 Corinthians 2:14, how he's brought before in the procession, and you just talked about under the feet and how yeah. Paul chooses weakness and letting Christ do the uh, letting God and Christ do the exaltation rather right, right. than exalting himself. All of that which plays is, in. So which all is all from the papers, Abraham story. Yeah, all of these papers that you're talking about has a has this thread I'm seeing that tie together. Oh well, you, yeah, amazing. I guess you could say that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's. Yeah, no, that was not intentional. I mean, but yeah, yeah. When you, I mean, we, <laughs> you're right. I write about a very small group of human beings who believe, you know, a one particular thing. So they tend to read text similar ways. So <laughs> I guess that's not a coincidence. Um, no, but uh, one thing about that, though, I'm glad you called out the David thing. You realize that Chronicles and, and Kings read those texts, read that story completely differently. Mm. Kings... Kings um, has act, it's it's uh, has God calling calling him to do it, but then he's like condemned for it for taking David taking the census. Yeah. So Chronicles has to correct this later, you know, like four hundred years or so later or whatever, and is like, 
Oh, well, Satan told him to do it. Okay. <laughs> Satan told him to take the census. The like, devil oh, made me do it. We have an ancient retcon, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, what really happened was Satan told him to do it. And that's why, you know, he was condemned, blah, blah, blah. So, but yes, but this is very important because it's taking a census of all of Israel, the sons of the sons of Elion, the sons of Yahweh. Mm-hmm. So that, that that's a divine mandate. Okay. Um, I think I think that's he's sort of like trying to be the seed of Abraham where he's failed. And so I think there's some play that's going on there. I'm not going to give out everything yet um, on that, <laughs> but, um, but, but think about, I will give out this. Oh no, I should hold it close. <laughs> oh, whoever so, needs you. <laughs> well, screw it. I'll just say it because I can, I can claim that somebody heard this on a podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's documented um, in, in Galatians three. What text does Paul use to to talk about Jesus's messiahship? Hmm. In Galatians three. Galatians three. Because a lot of scholars have a big problem with this text. Hold on. Galatians. Um, so he uses Genesis fifteen. This text we're okay. talking about. Okay. He quotes from Genesis 15, and this is that weird passage where he says, the, the sperma to Abraham, the, the seed of Abraham, is singular, which is referring to the Messiah, he says. Now, in all Jewish scholars, in all sort of like historians are like, uh, BS, that's definitely not singular. That's definitely just a corporate singular. It's talking about all his seed. This is not talking about the Messiah. You know, this is a this is a sort of Pauline idiosyncrasy here. Okay. Um, uh, well, I don't think it is. I think it's playing on this tradition, just like Moses is functioning in in my paper. I did an SBL. I didn't go go into Galatians three. I'm I'm going to propose that for either this SBL or the next one. Um, that this is actually what's going on with why Moses is given that, uh, is able to number the stars is because he's seen as the seed of Abraham. He's, he's the seed that, that is accomplishing that promise of establishing Israel where they're all, they're all multiplied. You know, they've, they've multiplied in Egypt. They've come out from under the, the gods and now they are, you know, sort of adopted as sons of God, you know, at the mountain. So, and, and I, so I think, and this is part of my paper, I think all the heavenly hosts that he's numbering are actually Israel at the foot of the mountain. Okay. That they've become like the stars. Um, awesome. So the, cause it's all vision. It's all interpreted as Moses will rule nations and men and all that, that you find from the Abrahamic promise texts in other Jewish interpretation. So I think this is a good example in this play of how early Jews, some early Jews at least, read the fulfillment of the the seed of Abraham could be represented in the great, you know, father Moses, who's deified and becomes the one who numbers the hosts. So we already have a tradition long before Jesus where Jews were reading that Genesis 15 text and seeing it fulfilled in their sort of hero figure okay. and being deified. So Paul would not be the first to do this. Paul would be reading it within that tradition, saying Jesus is that manifest. 
he's that seed manifest where he's the ultimately the ruler of all the hosts, which okay. Paul clearly says elsewhere. Right. You know? So this I think replace, this, this yeah. replacement theology is just rich because, you know, Be- Becker Legg's Harvard dissertation on uh, I do not Genesis 1. Oh, you don't do with Becker Legg and the Selim of Genesis 1. Uh, 26 were made in the Selim of the image of God. Oh, Selim. Uh, so the settlement. Well, no, of, of course, God. yeah, we're made in the image yeah. of God. Yeah, of course. So, so then on the mountain with Moses, they're saying, "Where does he sprinkle the blood? He sprinkles it on these stones, the Maserah, the statues, the you know that represent the people down below." So, it, am I seeing that properly? That maybe you know the glorification also, is intended to replace idols with humans, to replace idols and the nations with Israel. And so you have the people on the ground, but then they're represented by statues on the mountain, these stones, standing stones. The 12 standing stones. So you have this replacement idea that the standing stones in Exodus there, 24, represent the people down below, but the nations represent gods with their standing stones. And so you have this replacement idea going on. I'm wondering if that, if you could make that connection or not. I don't know. Well, but, uh, well when you said replacement theology, the, with that term is... Yeah, I don't mean the other. I mean, I mean, we're replacing, we, the glorified believers, like you're staying with Abraham and Moses and David attempted wrongly, but Christ succeeded. And Paul is trying to model that we become the glorification and we replace the gods of the nations. By, um, because yeah, we yeah, have so, the glory of God. Yeah. Let, well, let me, that's what I mean by replacement. That's my version okay, of replacement okay, theology. All right. Not well, what we, they've we done to, with it. Sure. Well, I have to be careful with that because, you know, I'm a scholar participating in scholarly discourse where in scholarly discourse, the, the use of the language of replacement theology is saying the church replaces Israel. And right. so that Israel is no longer the people of God. And so lots of anti-Semitic things, anti-Semitism came from that. And yeah. we see and that's sad because we're actually replacing the gods. Germany. Yeah, you know, we're actually not, replacing the gods, not, not Israel replacing the church. I, I know, but we have to be careful with that language because... Yeah. If, if 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 Jewish people hear that language, it means one thing. So, yeah, so we have to be, to be very. Mean, but yeah, we have to be very careful to not use that language when we're talking about the New Testament. Now, now, some what is people the proper would, phrase. Well, some people would say, as just as historians, not as contemporary theologians, because I'm not a contemporary theologian. Like that's not what I do. I'm a historian, so I do ancient stuff. But my knowledge base starts to fall off at the second, third century CE, you know, like so I do ancient, ancient stuff. So um, when we're talking about ancient stuff, some historians will say, well, the parting of the ways between Christians and Jews was like real early, like the time of the New Testament, it was already started. So like some some Jewish scholars, some some uh, even Christian or even unbelieving scholars who are just historians might say, for example, the Gospel of John is anti-Semitic because it says the Jews, you know, will do this, but we do this, you know, like it's already polemical against this group called the Jews, you know, as if they, the audience of the Gospel of John, is imagined as some community other than the Jews, meaning there's already some parting of the ways that's already happened. 
Um, so I don't take that reading personally. I think that reading is a good historical reading that's very highly probable. But the term Eudaios um, can just mean Judeans. Um, and Jewish religion is different all over the map, literally. So if you're practicing Judaism in Alexandria, it may look nothing like the Judeans. So, so you know, it, the, the, I take the Gospel of John as representative of rival Jewish thought. Right. So, but, so, but, but I, I perfectly would concede that it is possible to read it as we're already at Christianity by the time of the Gospel of John. It's possible to read it that way. I, I just personally don't. Right. Um, so, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. I know we're like way over time here. I, I, it's okay. We've uh, it's, it's been fantastic. I really appreciate uh, all your backgrounding because it's you background in a way that that highlights so much more to the story and brings so much more to the forefront than just reading the text. What yeah. I mean, there's like volumes of information in each one of these instances that uh, is exemplified when you do what you're doing and, and you're backgrounding it. So I, I truly appreciate that, which is why uh, I apologize, but which is why I, I wanted to highlight a few more of your texts because I want our audience to see a little more of, of the of what you do and to help sure. to bring yeah, sure. the story forward. So so I, I personally thank you for that. So yeah, no, I, I appreciate the time. I'm like, I love doing this stuff. This is why I do it, you know. Um <laughs> I love talking about this stuff. Uh, you know, I would do it for free if I could have a food and shelter, you know? <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean, I'm not kidding. You know, it's like, I just, academia is just where I ended up on accident. It was like, I just kept asking questions. You know, I was a, a student minister and then a teaching pastor. And then a, I can't do this anymore. And, you know, just kept, you know, questioning and questioning and reading and reading and just going deeper down the rabbit hole. And so next thing you know, I'm in academia for God's sake. So it's like, um, it, it's weird, you know, I'm not really a stereotypical academic. I'm not one of these like, man, yes, well, see the second heiress of the participle, blah, blah, blah. Like I don't, I'm not that guy. So I, I love traditions history. I love making connections. I love painting the big picture. I love showing how things develop over time. Uh, so I love being a religious historian in that sense, you know, um, because it's eye-opening. It's, it's, I mean, it's radically different world we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, we're not, we're not just talking about before the Reformation, you know, we're talking about before the Enlightenment, before Galileo, before everything that happens in the Western world. I mean, we're talking about ancient, we're 2000 years. Like, I know we know this, like we know the time scale, but we don't, it's very, you're, you're talking about layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of tradition over hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, you know, yeah. th these interpretations and dogmas and stuff didn't just plop down, you know, like they, they happen over long periods of time. And, and some of these traditions that last into the rabbis and into early Christianity go way, way, way back. And so when you, you, when you can help explicate those and show the people just how foreign these, your own Bible is to us, mm. it, it brings a, another sense, it brings a whole nother uh, 
sort of level of humility, this level of historical empathy for the other that you otherwise would never have. Right. I mean, like, until something so dear to you that's so ubiquitous to you becomes foreign and othered, you, you, you need to go through that experience. Students need to go through that experience. And it's hard, and you need virtuous people doing this for them, not just, like, pushing them off the cliff, say, see you later, suckers. You know? <laughs> like, like, that's not the way to do it. Yeah. But because you can do that, knowledge is power. You can really screw up someone's whole worldview and just leave them, you know. But, like, you have to walk people through this stuff to show how radically foreign this stuff is and how exciting it is. And it, for, it forces you, if you really want to learn and understand at a really deep level, you don't have a choice. It forces you to learn cultures and worlds that are radically foreign to your own. Right. So then it others you and you become the foreigner. Right. <laughs> you see? And so th- this is whether you're a Christian, Jew, Buddhist, atheist, agnostic, whatever. Academic religious studies is, I think, uh, I'm obviously super biased, <laughs> but I think is one of the most important disciplines today. And the reason why I say this is because it forces us to think at such highly nuanced levels to where we can empathize with any culture other than our own. Mm. Because even our own stories have been othered for us. And we know what it feels like to be radically foreign to something that is so native to us. So if you go through that experience, then you might know what it feels like for a foreigner on, on native soil. You know, you might know what it feels like for some radical culture that are like, oh, they're all terrorists. They're all not like us. You know, (laughs) it's like, no, maybe you're the enemy. You know, it it just it, it it just allows you to see the world in such everything becomes like three dimensional. Everything becomes you you see the world in an entirely different way. It will radically reshape your worldview. And sometimes that's painful. Sometimes that's very difficult. But but what it is is paradigm shifting, yeah. Um, and it allows you to be a, a deeper thinking, more empathetic human being. And we yeah. need that really, really bad. Really I appreciate bad. you describing that funny feeling in my belly as I was hearing you talk. I'm like, I don't understand everything, yeah. but I feel like out in space in a good way. In a, in a as yeah. you said, in a humility. Humility-izing way, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, hum- humiliating way. Yeah. In a positive sense. You know, and I know it's hard for Americans to be humiliated, you know. Um, <laughs> we rule everything, you know. Uh, um, but you have, to, you have to do this, you know. You have to push American Christianity off the cliff for a little bit. You yeah. have to do that. They have to see that, guys, your little versions of Christianity is so new. Like... You're like the brand new thing on the block. You know, you're not special. Like th- th- this thing is so ancient. These traditions go so far beyond people even knowing there was continents over here, you know, <laughs> like yeah. so, so far beyond that. Like, so you're late to the game, you know, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. you know, it's like somebody walking into just, just, the, I think this is a good analogy. 
American Christianity is like the freshman in high school walking into a fourth tier quantum physics course at MIT and telling them, I rule this place. <laughs> it's that's what it's like. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's so crazy. You know, yeah. it's so crazy. I've seen this in action. I've been in India and people have misunderstood mother Teresa and, you know, going back to what you said earlier, these things go back before Christ, these traditions of this suffering. And she was misunderstood. And because of some of atonement theories that are more Augustinian and not what you just described. And she talked about these things and taught about these things of suffering and fellowship in that way so that she could be connected with the poor. And she came from Europe and did what she did wonderfully in India. And people that don't understand this. They're like the freshmen. They come late to the game and they're like, well, this is not Jesus. This is not the God, you know, and they don't understand it. And you describing today just made me so much understand the mistake they were making with Mother Teresa and what she was digging into and, and like sucking the marrow of the bone of pulling the stuff that's even before Christ, centuries before Christ in Judaism. And she was able to do that in such a remarkable way to reach people in Calcutta and across the world, there's been this, you know, mar remarkable uh, transformation that she brought on. And it was all from her understanding of what you just said in this podcast, that most people probably listening from the West would have no idea that this even existed. And right. she just modeled it so beautifully, just the another incarnation like Paul of Christ and suffering and how weakness and God's power overcomes. And it's just being more than a conqueror. And I just love it. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. Uh, hey, man, you're welcome. Um, we have a little uh, statue and grotto to Mother Teresa on Marquette campus um, over here. Uh, and I mean, she's not without her critics. Don't get me wrong. Um <laughs> the late Christopher Hitchens, of course, is probably the chiefest among them. Oh, yeah. um, uh, but, but um, of redemptive suffering is a very thorny issue. It's, it's a very difficult issue because it, it has been abused so much in history to justify so much unnecessary violence and in, succumbing to so much unnecessary suffering. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a complicated issue. I don't think there's sort of a one correct reading of this. You know, I think there needs to be a cacophony of voices here to debate about this because um, while yes, I realize that this, the center of the Christian tradition is this idea of a suffering Messiah that, re that results in the, the restoration of the world. And that is part of this Jewish tradition of, of the suffering of the faithful that leads to the golden age of the Messiah or whatever. It's part of a longstanding Jewish tradition. But even that tradition, I think, oh boy, this is hard to say out loud, but it, <laughs> it, 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 we need to probe that tradition and say, maybe not everything about that tradition is good. Mm. Um, I know it's, the, I know I'm like getting at the core of Christianity here, so I got to be careful, but um but this can result in bad things too. I mean, it, it can result in sort of like unchecked oppression of a lot of people. 
So there needs to be a balance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because, and this is why I say when, as a historian, this is why I say when I deal with texts like say Luke 22 or, or, you know, two Corinthians 12 or whatever, all these sort of like suffering for Jesus texts, you know, like they're, they have to be read. I'm a primarily a historian of apocalypticism in second temple Judaism, which is the, the Jesus movement is a sect it's an apocalyptic Jesus. It's an apocalyptic Jewish sect of the period. Mm-hmm. So there are other apocalyptic sects as well. So, but it has these texts. I would argue the the ones that we've covered tonight have to be read from within that worldview historically. Meaning, these people thought the end of the age was at hand, and so their ethics are ramped up. Because they think that the turn of the age is about to happen and the judgment's about to take place. So it's almost just as a historian, I'm not saying this as a theologian, I'm not saying anything prescriptively theologically. Let me be very clear. As a historian, I would have to say that the Perusia failed. Christ didn't come back. There was no great resurrection from the dead. There was no death of all the gods. There was no overturning of the world. So what Christians do is they reread those sort of imminent apocalyptic texts that have those radical ethics and reapply them and retweak them to fit their own scenarios as they're being received over time. Mm. So a great example of this is these ascent traditions often get internalized as mysticism where they don't become like literal cosmological ascents, well, literal in a mystical way, they become like descents into the soul where God is like the kingdom of God within you stuff. The navel gazing of Eastern prayer, the hesychastic tradition where the, 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 the cosmos is like your body is like a microcosm of the whole cosmic order and, and God's sort of in you. So you got to need a focus inside. And so the radical apocalyptic outside into the world, it's all turning over. We're all going to send and take over. Well, what if it actually meant that it's internal, you know, like, so you have rereadings of traditions over time. Yeah, Desert yeah. Fathers. Yeah, exa- exactly. But yeah. What, what, what you'll find is on the fringe of the empire is where you find these apocalyptic texts. Ethiopia, Syria, Slavonic, mm-hmm. all this stuff. You find this at the fringe of the empire. This is not a coincidence. Hmm. Interesting. You know, yeah. the apocalyptic literature is very, it's very, you know, turn the whole world upside down. Well, if you have a Christian empire, we're good. You know? <laughs> It's fine. Kingdom of God's here, you know? So, so you see what I'm saying? So apocalyptic has to be retweaked over time. So as a historian, when I'm describing what first century Jesus followers meant in their own Jewish apocalyptic context, I am not saying that all of that stuff is easily taken into later Christianity. Gotcha. It's not. This is why sometimes what I say is going to sound so foreign to you is because I'm describing what ancient first century people thought to the best of my ability. Right. Um, which is incredibly limited because we have limited data and I'm not that smart. I've just been doing the same thing over and over and over again and failing at it a bunch of times and just staying at it to where I can like, I know a few things about it, you know? 
So all that to say, I want to be very clear of what we can actually do with historical stuff as it relates to later theology. Because okay. um, it's it's going to cause problems. I mean, it will. And I do want to cause problems for the theologians. <laughs> I, I do. I really do. Because it's honest work, I think. It's, yeah, it, yeah. You need to problematize it so you can honestly see, oh, there actually is radical development here. Mm-hmm. Like, there, there, there is, like, things have changed over time. Like, it, you need to get people to... Again, if it's uncomfortable, sorry, but that's just the way history is. It's messy, you know, it's not clean. There is no like, well, here, first century to here. Boom. Easy. Like, (laughs) it really isn't easy. I I can uh, I can definitely relate to that as an evangelical, David. Yeah, I go to, you know, I I know a lot of family members and friends right now who who feel very uh, like everything going on is apocalyptic right now. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I was raised with that. And so what I feel like that does when you explained it like that, when it's out of balance, uh, a lot of times what that does is at least the way I've witnessed and even within myself, I can fall into this trap where it negates personal responsibility to actually Bingo. do the work. Bingo. You become almost like a professional <laughs> victim. Man, this guy's preaching right now. (laughs) No, but I think you hit the nail on the head, honestly. Like, I'm not not being facetious. I think you're absolutely right. Because what happens, what what I want you to pay attention to this, is like what people need to really, this is why I still do this wild apocalyptic crap, is that I do, I love it just because it's weird and cosmological and all that stuff. It's, it's cool on its own merits, you know, to study. Yeah. It's fun to study. And oh, my dissertation is going to ruffle some feathers. I guarantee it. <laughs> Ooh, it's going to ruffle some feathers, but um, <laughs> I can't wait till like Protestant evangelical Paul scholars read it. It's going to be so good. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, sorry. Sorry. That was for free. Um, oh, that's great. <laughs> but, the, the reason why I still love apocalyptic so much is because when you study these movements in their own historical context and you start doing like the theory behind it and like realizing that there's like sociological phenomena that's not that's not unique to early Christianity or early Judaism or this is in ancient Mediterranean religions more broadly. This is in other religions and other cultures. This is today. You know, every generation has their apocalypticists. Every generation does. Yeah. Every, literally, this is not, like, right? We all know them. Like, you can name them. You know, it's like <laughs> every generation has their, oh, no, this is the end. Oh, this is it. This is the time, you know. <laughs> Everybody thinks that, right? Like, right. every generation is worse than the one previous Oh, the world has never been so bad. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. everybody does that. Yeah, because they're it's a, it's a it's a natural human group response when you have narratives and stories and promises, especially of like an identity, and when those things get checked and challenged and everything by powers that are beyond your control, and you can't do anything about it, then yeah. well, God's got to do something. <laughs> So, so maybe this was all written about us and God's going to do this for us, you know, and da, da, da. so every generation does that, including yeah. the early Jesus movement. I know this is hard to hear, but that's, yeah. that, they're not unique in this. Yeah. yeah. 
So, so for our <laughs> listeners, how would you uh, address a failed parasia? Is there anything future happening that you think, or, you know, is it just, uh, I will defer that question to the theologians. And, <laughs> Has anyone I, honestly, addressed it? Has anyone no, no. that you know of addressed it decently that you could uh, refer to? The- so there are some um, evangelical scholarly friends of mine who who have written a volume, an edited volume, a couple year, a few years back. I don't know, five, seven years, um, called uh, "When the Son of Man Didn't Come." Or something like that. Mm, I think I have that book. Oh, you do? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, my friend Chris Hayes and a, a couple other people. Um, is it Chris Hayes? I think, yeah. I think Chris Hayes did that. Tried to remember. Um, I haven't actually but, read it but, yet. Yeah. But the, it has a number of articles that are that, that uh, go something to the effect of the way they answered it. I'm not answering it. I don't know how to answer it. But um that what they tried to say is that are, you know, they're all active, you know, participating Christians in, in their traditions. They would try to argue that it's just like the prophets in the sense that, you know, when the people have, uh, and, and you see this in rabbinic tradition too, when the people have are, are righteous and, and, doing what Christ expects them to do. That's when the Messiah comes or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the only failure is that the people didn't actually follow Christ and do what is commanded. And so it's delayed. And then when they all end up doing this thing, Christ will come back. I don't know, something like that. (laughs) So so, uh, go read their book. I don't know. I'm doing a horrible job representing them, but, but that's just like one answer um, from within like a believing evangelical type, loose evangelical, I'll say Um, there's, they're scholars. I mean, they're, they're legitimate scholars, but um, that's the way people of faith have tried to deal with it. Um, Some people will say that, you know, it's just imminent, just always stays imminent you know it could come that's the traditions i grew up in is very much um as gumby was saying like i grew up in like uh free will southern baptist dispensational tradition you know as a kid yeah i actually did too so yeah i can can relate (laughs) yeah so keep your eyes on israel brothers you know (laughs) (laughs) the rapture's coming you know it it, it, that it is interesting because when I when, when I transitioned into Catholicism, there isn't a hardcore set belief. It's very much we just believe that at some point Jesus will come. That's it. It's just the creed. Yeah, that's it. It's the creed. That's it. it it's yeah. it's a very loose. Someday he'll come back. That's it. You well, know. I, I honestly, I mean, in terms of this is just an opinion. This isn't like me as a scholar talking. It's just like sort of my personal opinion. So take it or leave it. But like, I think that the Catholics are probably the best at this. Um, just they just confess it creedally. Like yeah. he'll come back at some point. Right. We okay. have clear Catholic social teaching of how we're supposed to live in the world. Right. So. Mm-hmm. That, that, and first of all, that's the only answer you can give a Christian anyways. Yeah. Yeah. There aren't any other answers. 
Like, and the, the texts are so clear about this too. It's like this problem literally goes back to the beginning, like literally within the first generation of, of Jesus people, they're already saying around, you know, 70 AD when some of these are CE, excuse me, um, when some, I'm a historian, I don't want to, you know, not everyone has to buy into the church's calendar. Right. I so, <laughs> um, so, um, when these, when the gospels are written uh, after the temple's destroyed, which I take uh, to be the case, Mark is probably at the earliest seventy. Um, they're already, you already start to get like these sort of generalizations of, of the Parousia. Yeah, like especially by the time you get to Luke, where it's like, but but even even in not even in Luke, he's like the Son of Man doesn't even know the hour of the day, you know? Right. So so it's like. Okay, if the Son of Man doesn't shut up, you know, like everyone else shut up. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like if this if the guy that you worship as the Lord of the freaking cosmos doesn't know the day, how the heck is your backwater TBN <laughs> whatever thousands of dollars to get on TV gonna know anything about it? Oh you man. Know? All you're doing is making yourself look like a complete ass. Like <laughs> right. everyone. Like, yeah. and, and I think Christians need to get past this whole like, oh, Christians are supposed to be nice all the time, you know? Like <laughs> little uh, British schoolboys. <laughs> like, like, no. If people are pitching this stuff, call them what they are. They're charlatans. They're whores. You know, they're just in it for the money. They want a big following. Don't listen to these ass hats. Like, right. <laughs> that's how that's the only way to respond to them. You have to take the gloves off because what's happening is, is you have ignorant people who normally are elderly people in America who are bedridden or stuck at home and they can't go to church all the time and their church is on TV or from their bed or from their couch or whatever. And that's all they get. And they just suck that crap in. And guess what? Oh, now send us our check for ninety nine ninety nine and blah, 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 <laughs> you know. And Let so they, they take all their money. <laughs> right. And so through all of those guys and gals that do this, you're <laughs> all a bunch of charlatans. You're all a bunch of whores. Cut it out. Shut your damn mouths. And yes, I'm going to use all that language because it, you're, <laughs> literally, you're, you're literally assaulting the poor, yep. the elderly. Yep. You're preying upon them. And every word that I just used to describe you is nothing compared to what the prophets and Jesus say about you. It's true. <laughs> wow. Woo. So don't get mad at me. Like I, I'm keeping it. I'm keeping it light. Like yeah. I'm keeping it. The tea is Go read spill. Ezekiel. Go read Isaiah. Go read John the Baptist. Go read what Jesus says about false prophets. You know, like I didn't write this stuff. Yeah. You know? Like I'm just saying, if you want to claim those traditions, if you want to say Bible, 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 then I'm okay. Well, then I'll use the Bible back at you. <laughs> yeah. You don't want a tango. <laughs> now look who's preaching. Yeah, sorry, man. I get <laughs> no, go for it. That's, That's awesome. fine. We love it. Come on, bring well, it on. I'm just Amen. triggered by it, you know, because yeah. I grew up yeah. in this culture. I am a, I grew up in this culture. A lot of what I do, I have to recognize, man, I tell my freaking therapist this, you know, it's like, <laughs> A lot of what I do, no joke, like um, a lot of what I do, I know is a product of my background. I understand that, you know, like yeah. getting understanding the apocalyptic tradition and getting into that and getting into the weird stuff that no one told me, you know, that yeah. stuff like 
there's trajectories that lead you into that, right? right. So, oh, I hate saying right. Sorry, I, I hate when scholars do that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Here's some point that you didn't know before, right? And you're all like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> you all go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I hate that rhetoric so much. <laughs> Amen. Sorry. Sorry for using that. Um, but no, but this is, I think it's a serious point to, because I grew up in, in an evangelical Southern Baptist tradition that was very nationalist. Mm-hmm. It's very much yeah. America, Republican Jesus. Yep, you know, the too. only black family we had in our church was like the token black family, you know, like so in this mm-hmm. big, you know, conservative Republican white uh, church holding it down against the gays in Austin, Texas, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, the that kind of environment, literally our Fourth of July celebrations would be just as big or bigger than Easter. Like, wow. It would, I'm not kidding. Like, we would have Marines. This is insane. I can't <laughs> believe it. We had Marines rappel out of the ceiling to step in time in, in a church service. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> oh, wow. In a 4th of July service. We had like Humvees and like stuff out front in the military to like go and look at. In, after the 4th of July, like it was so militarized. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it was so sick looking back at it, just sick. Yeah. Um, so antichrist. Like, wow, man. It's just every time I, th- I haven't thought about it in years, but it's like <laughs> when you, that's the time, that's how I grew up. So yeah. it's like, yeah, of course I'm going to react this way. You know, what do you expect? <laughs> right. you know? Like, that's the, so I, I I felt like it was necessary to give some of my background there because, you know, it I, it sounds like I'm being harsh to some people maybe who haven't heard this before, but um, trust me, I'm keeping it light. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's there's systemic problems in the U.S. with this, and yeah. it's affecting policy. It's affecting who we. It's it brought about Trump. It it brought about it brought it affects our foreign policy. Yeah. Um, it affects everything. So evangelicals are a huge voting block. And after Falwell um, and the, the 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 movement to the religious right and all this becomes this sort of political force, um, we you know we have to kick back against it and fight it. It's funny you say because I I grew up in a house where my mother played TBN twenty four seven. I'm sorry, brother. <laughs> yeah, you need you need a, some more washings, man. Um, right? No, but for the real, it, it, it really him. does. It, it, th- these things like creep into people's psyche. You know, it's like yeah. it affects how they see the rest of the world. You know, yeah. it affects how they see themselves, their community, the others in their community. You know, yeah. it affects all of that. So. Yeah. It's important to really dig into this stuff critically and 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 probe it and and tear away at a, a lot of these layers of assumptions that we don't even know are like pretty brand new. I mean, they're not they're not remotely historically Christian at all. I mean, yeah. um not to say Christianity isn't filled with horrible things in the past. <laughs> I mean, our history is pretty bad, but yeah. But I let's mean, not Let's not keep making it bad, yeah. You know? Right, yeah. amen. You should see my reaction when mm-hmm. I met my went, met the, a Muslim for the first time, and they were nothing but courteous to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, my 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 Muslim friends tend to be way nicer than a lot of my conservative uh, Christian friends growing up. 
Um, but but this is the this is the part too. Is like you don't want to paint with a broad brush right. because a lot of people are just are just blue collar working class people yeah. that just want to love Jesus and love others or whatever, and they're Absolutely. the most hospitable, sweetest people on earth. Yeah, yeah. But no, they get swept up into these. Yeah. big ideological political movements unknowingly like but they really but they get passionate about it even though they don't i mean they don't know sort of the political machinations and the history behind it all and and how corrupt the theology is behind it all they they just that's their tribe you know like this is our people this is must be right it's what the preachers say you know it's from the bible so i guess right. it's right you know right. so you know, th- th- so they don't, I don't, it's never, you never attack the sheep. You only attack the wolves, you know? Yeah. You never go for the sheep. It's not their fault. Like they're, they're ignorant. Yeah. I, like I think, I think about this stuff pretty, not obviously as much as you, cause you study it, but I, I think about it for someone who doesn't study it an awful lot. And I'm always amazed with how much it's still in my subconscious. Even when I call it out and be like, Oh, that's, that's not Christian. That's white nationalist. Then I find some other elements of theology. I'm like, I didn't even realize how that was steeped in like, you know, that didn't exist a couple hundred years ago. And so you just imagine somebody who doesn't really have time to study it. Maybe they're working three jobs and it's just, that's their whole religion. They're receiving really their whole religious instruction. Yeah. You're, you're, you're singing my song, man. Like (laughs) like that's, I'm, I'm serious. It's like, all I am is just some guy who's 39 who grew up in that world, who just kept at this stuff. And kept going down the rabbit hole. And by the time I look back up, that rabbit hole is now like a little pin drop, you know? <laughs> so it's like, I, I'm just, I am where I am, you know? So it's yeah. like, and I had to leave everything. Like I lost connections. I lost job opportunities. I lost, you know, all this stuff, leaving evangelicalism behind. I was, you know, they were trying to make me one of these good old boys, these, you know? <laughs> and uh, and I was just like, man, screw that crap. I want to read some books. Like, you know, because <laughs> like, all those good old boys are stupid. They don't know anything. Like, they just, <laughs> they, don't, they don't know anything. Like, so it's like, I just, I just wanted to keep studying. I was excited about the stuff, you know, like mm. I just got really excited about the material. And so yeah. it wasn't, I didn't have any sort of like, oh, I'm going to go back at my tradition or I didn't have any of that. I was always angsty and loud, boisterous David, but it, my my impetus to to study this stuff was not to bash my tradition. It was to try to save my faith. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Because the deeper I got in historical criticism, I mean, there was like nothing left. I mean, like it just tore my faith to pieces. So I was like, is there anything salvageable here? You know. Mm-hmm. And what some people do when they when they study this stuff academically is they get drawn into like the Catholic tradition or Orthodox tradition or or uh, high high church Anglo Catholic Episcopals or something. Or Anglicans, you know, that's where they'll go because it's like, okay, well, it's not just the Bible that won't work because if you go down that rabbit hole, that'll run out. And so it needs to be more than just the Bible. Like, so the authority, oh, must be in the church and the sacraments and all that sacramental theology. I thought was going to save my faith too. So I went kind of Anglican when I left the pastorate for a little while, Episcopal, really. Um, so I, you know, people will go to where they feel like they could still have a home. Once they have that education and they don't know what to do with it. Um, and so, yeah, that, 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 that will naturally happen when you have your sort of fundamental worldview shaken and, and the fundamental sort of a priori uh, suppositions you have are challenged. And you're like, Oh wait, I believe these things as fundamental, 
without ever probing them or testing them. You know, mm -hmm. I just sort of, they're just the sort of window dressings of my worldview. Yeah. And so you don't question those because the, the, the playground's so big, you can live your whole life in these traditions and never bump up against the edges. Like you can just live your whole life in your tradition and have commerce and relationships and ma get married and have kids and go to those churches and go to conferences and read books and get degrees even and still be within that fence. Yeah, and yeah. so, so some people never test the fences, mm -hmm. but I was always the test the fence guy. I was always like, <laughs> I don't believe what you said, pastor. What about this? You know, what about this? You know? yeah. So I was that annoying kid, you know? <laughs> Awesome. Right on. That's when you score them runs hitting it over the fence. <laughs> yeah, baseball metaphor. Okay. Well, the scoring the runs in academia doesn't get you money. So I'm 39 and poor as dirt, have no savings account, and still finishing my terminal degree. So how's that for American success story? You know? <laughs> um, well, we appreciate a lot of glitz and glamour. There's a lot of glitz and glamour with the sort of discovery channel type academics, you know, at least that's the way people think about it. You know, some people think about it, but there is no real glitz and glamour in the humanities. I mean, there's no money in it. There's hardly any hope for a job at all. I mean, humanities departments are shrinking all the time in universities, mm -hmm. uh, especially religion departments. Yeah. So, and that's where you need it most. You need the critical religious studies side to really be able to break down some of these frameworks. And so you can't just keep working from within the tribe, you know? Yeah. Um, one thing, one of my Bible college presidents, actually, he's still the president, um, said to me one time was about historical criticism, because I was getting pretty deep into it, um, was that it was unchristian. And I was like, excuse me? No, it's not. Plenty of Christians do this. And that's, that's just an ignorant thing to say. Like, why would you say that this is unchristian? Um, like critically, you know, critiquing sort of fundamental dogmas based on like historical study. Um, and he was like, because in order to do historical criticism, you have to be outside of the group to criticize it. You can't be in the group. So it's fundamentally unchristian it's like you to in order to critique it you have to be outside of the group and i was like so you mean like all the prophets <laughs> <laughs> i don't remember what he said because i just thought i scored one on him you know <laughs> dropped the mic walked away <laughs> just like a fool you know but no but, so but, but seriously, that's what i thought i was like well i don't know i've read isaiah a bunch of times and he doesn't seem like somebody in the camp, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, this guy's like walking around naked outside the city, like you damn Jerusalem. You know? Like this is not, you know, someone like just within the fold inerrancy, inerrancy, you know? Um, uh, so, yeah. So the prophetic tradition has always been, I've always gravitated towards it because it, it, it gave me, language and a context to critique my own tradition. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what most of the Bible is, is just a critique of itself. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's yeah, just sort of critiquing their own people. I mean, the reason why we have most of these books is just like, all y'all suck. You know, it's like, <laughs> um, so, 
you know, I feel like that I'm just part of that tradition in a way, you know, yeah. I just see myself as like, this is just prophetic tradition. You know, um, I love Walter Brueggemann's prophetic imagination. I read that in college and that was really helpful to me. Um, okay. Be like, Oh, you know what? There, there is an inspired imagination that Christians can have and, mm. and it's good. And it's like, what it's kind of like what the prophets do. Um, it's not a one-to-one. I'm not saying I'm a prophet or some crap like that. You know, I'm just saying, the tradition's important, you know, right. it's yeah. a self-critical, it's a self-reflective tradition, you know, yeah. um, and that's something we need desperately. Sounds like Paul. <laughs> yeah, Paul was definitely that, for sure. He, <laughs> well, he claimed to be, like, in the called from birth. He literally quotes Jeremiah for himself, saying, yeah, that's me, man. Yeah. Um, but Paul was also kind of a jerk. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, think I would have got along with Paul if I knew him. <laughs> I would, if anyone preaches a gospel other than what I preach, let him be an asthma. You know, it's like the other preachers are like, "What the heck, Paul? What? <laughs> I don't even care if it's an angel from heaven." <laughs> it's like, oh, Paul, look at you. <laughs> Oh yeah, I think he's a total a-hole, but you know, but I like but I like studying him because that's the beginning of all this, you know. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the that's where it all starts. And yes, I like being controversial like this. It's fun. <laughs> Heard it on Bible over brews first, right? <laughs> well, this will definitely be two episodes. <laughs> right. <laughs> cool. Wow. David, it has been a phenomenal evening. Thank you so much for all of your work. Um, Thanks. I mean, it's, again, the backgrounding. I know I learn from it. I grow from it. Uh, time and time again, I turn back to uh, to your inspirations, your writings. So I personally thank you on my side of it. Um, Theo, any last words? If Theo's there. Oh, I yes. am just enthralled every time I get to talk and experience uh, David Burnett. And, you know, uh, Zachariah couldn't be here tonight. And he always says that your podcast is the best of of the ones on, on Heiser, Naked Bible, uh, <laughs> because what you do is just amazing. So uh, I just can't wait to get a hold of this content and would ask, you know, other than academia.edu, is there any way people can get a hold of your stuff? I guess, because I want to get it to my students as soon as possible. So, Uh, but they're less fortunate. Yeah. Thank you for your kind words. I I really appreciate that. Um, It means a lot to me um, because it means that, okay, so I got to, couple of people who care about what I do, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So academia.edu is where, you know, my two publications are, but all those papers from SBL that just aren't in print yet is just, it's just the throes of academia and get, getting caught up in my PhD program. And then like two years being withdrawn and depressed and not wanting to touch the stuff, you know, like, so that's why it hasn't got out yet, but it will get out. You know, but I'm, but, you know, I'm starting to work real heavily on my dissertation and some of those pieces, a couple of those, especially all the stuff related to first Corinthians 15, that will come out. Um, It's just a matter of time. So yeah, if, if whatever, whatever I do print, it's going to be on academia.edu and the two publications are already there. Um, 
So if you just academia.edu search David Burnett, I'll come up. You know, my number bald one. head is part of the best. <laughs> you should switch number one. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah. Oh. Two T's with no E at the end. It's Scottish. <laughs> yeah. uh, Keith, any, any words? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you all were doing this, but I was playing a little drinking game with myself where every time I was impressed by David's wisdom and candor, I would take a drink and I was completely wasted within 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Kegs, did you drink tonight? (laughs) So I I am so grateful for the opportunity to to bask in in just, you know, it, it really, you know, changes how I think of things. It kind of, you know, it's definitely helped me in, you know, I, I've been going through a lot of those same things where I've been down the spiral, looking up in my own way and seeing well, how much is wrong with the popular theology out there and what's really left. Mm-hmm. And to bask in the light of someone who's really taking that research deeper and and giving that glimpse of how much more there is out there to understand. And, you know, especially when we we step outside ourselves and just think of, of how we're folks interpreting this in the day and what were all the dynamics that long predated um, even them, let alone us, um, you know, it, it keeps me going. It, it's, it's, it's the, it's a thrill to see, um, it also when you, you know, and you explain in the later half of, of the, of the show, your heart behind all this and how you're really motivated to, um, you know, find what's really there and, and get past kind of the, the muck on the surface, the, the surface pond scum. I'm actually borrowing someone else's analogy there, but, um, of, of modern Christianity to see what's really there. So, Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Keith. I appreciate you. <laughs> I just want to say thank you very much. I really enjoyed listening to you. Um, I'm definitely have to go back and rewatch this and uh, <laughs> get all the stuff I missed and didn't really comprehend and you know dive deeper into it. But um, coming from a background like a lot of these guys, you know where you know you just had this idea pounded into you of what Christianity was and stuff. Um, I've been myself struggling for years kind of going this can't be right this just a and b just are not adding up properly so to have someone like you out there who is looking into this stuff from a historical standpoint and you know telling us about the traditions and the words and the meanings and going for it thank you very much really appreciate it thank you, thank you man I, I appreciate that too don't look it's like i'm just warning you in advance <laughs> when you pull that thread it doesn't stop <laughs> I'm all about pulling the thread. <laughs> so keep keep pulling at it and keep learning, you know. Thank you. Gilby? Uh, I mean, I just have to piggyback off what these guys said. I mean, I'm really humbled, and um, we appreciate your work. And hearing some of your background uh, that led you to this place, man, it's it's really inspiring. I think so many people relate to that. So keep at it, friend. <laughs> yeah. We, I mean, appreciate it, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. You'll always have a platform here. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. And and anybody who wants to look up David's work, please go to academia, academia, academia.edu. Um, he's on there. Um, I, I follow him. Uh, please follow him. And the more people we can get uh, looking up his work, uh, the more we can keep bumping him to the top of that page. Right. <laughs> so. And I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, you can follow me there. Uh, I am actually using Twitter now. I didn't really use Twitter. You're before. a pretty good tweet. I gotta say, I approve. Um, what is uh, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, what is it? Uh, let me see. I don't even remember. It shows you how much I'm. 
I just repost stuff I post on Facebook, basically. At dburnett51. Nice. Okay. At Thank you. dburnett51. That's D-B-U-R-N-E-T-T-5-1. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, David A. Burnett. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I try to keep um, people up to date with some scholarly stuff that's happening in the Guild and what studies need to be paid attention to, I think, and mm-hmm. or, you know, and just give a lot of my own personal opinions on there, too, if you're interested in that. But I'm, no, I'm nothing special. There's plenty of people way smarter than me out there. But, um, but I do want to just give everything that I'm learning back. You know, I just want to, mm. cause it's not, I'm not really ultimately doing it for me. There's no money in this, you know? Right. So it's, I want to teach, you know, to, teaching to me is like my crack, you know, it's like, that's what gets me going. That's what gets me high. You know, it's like when I see a classroom after I've taught like gospel John or something and, and, you know, you have these cradle Catholics like, whoa, you know, like, <laughs> That's what I live for, man. I live for that, you know. So, if 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 I can be a help to you, I'll I'll try, you know. So, yeah, awesome. Was well, greatly appreciated. Awesome. Thank you so much for everything you do, David. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, please check us out on all social media and on our Patreon. Our links are all over the place. Love you. See you soon. All right. Peace out. Night. <laughs>